Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, September 9th, and today I talked to Dylan Byers about something that we CNN alums love to talk about, CNN. There are lots of theories flying around about CNN's supposed drift to the right and some outright conspiracies about why certain reporters are being fired. CNN's recent moves are even getting under the skin of the Biden White House. Dylan, as usual, is here to tell us what's real and what's not. And later on, Alex Bigler is back with another round of Feedback Friday. She's here with Julia Yaffe to talk about the personal connections she has with the stories she writes and how it impacts her work. Plus how Julia decompresses, knowing that tomorrow will be worse. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers the Beat. Happy Friday, everybody. I'm joined today by Dylan Byers, who uh, we haven't heard from for a while. He was on a nice little vacation in his homeland, the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. How was it up there in August? It's beautiful. It's sunny and beautiful and feels like the only part of the country that's not on fire. Okay, well, we can talk more about um, the greater Seattle SeaTac area on another pod and, and what people there think about Russell Wilson not being around anymore. But you were gone last week, I believe, when CNN let John Harwood go. And for people who don't know who John Harwood is, longtime business and political correspondent, he went out guns blazing, actually, after news came out that his contract was basically being killed. I think he had two years left on his contract. Went on CNN and gave a testimonial about the importance of speaking up against anti-democracy forces in this country. Uh, And then, you know, there was this like Twitter conspiracy theory going around that CNN saw that and then fired him because they were angry. And that's not what went down. And it it revealed a, a sort of ignorance about how these things actually work. But why was John Harwood let go from CNN? Because there are a lot of people out there who think this is symptomatic of a nefarious CNN plan to sort of like cut people out who have been speaking up about saving our democracy and speaking truth to Donald Trump and and MAGA forces, not treating them like conventional Republicans. Right. Let's start with sort of what I find to be the most salient detail here, which is that like Brian Stelter before him, John Harwood had multiple years left on his contract. So getting rid of him doesn't certainly doesn't save you any money. You have to you have to pay people out when you fire them ahead of the end of their contract. And so I think what it reflects is a desire to no longer have John Harwood at the network, much as the decision to get rid of Brian Stelter reflected a desire. Yes, perhaps Chris Licht felt like they didn't need an hour long media show on Sundays, but also they didn't need Brian Stelter at the network. And it can seem conspiratorial at times. I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think it's very public. I think that Chris Licht has been very clear that he wants the network to be less polarizing, less partisan, to be more, to sort of to tone down the coverage and, and the, the tone of the debate and make it more respectful. And I think one of the ways you do that is you get rid of the people who have embodied the sort of heavily anti-Trump, anti-Republican, critical lens. Now, there are also circumstances in which someone like John Harwood might have been let go for very specific reasons to him. Perhaps they felt like he just wasn't providing enough for the network or what have you. But I do think there's a trend here that's sort of unavoidable is you're letting people go ahead of contract. 
because you are trying to reform the network. And one of the ways you do that, there are some people who you can say, look, you need to sort of change the tone and tenor of your conversation. And maybe they get in line. And then there's another way, which is you just sort of get rid of people. And it's pretty clear that that's what's happening here. And I think it's raised a lot of anxiety. Is sort of CNN has sort of been in a perpetual state of anxiety for the entire year. But it has rekindled that anxiety for people who are nervous about their own futures. So how is that anxiety playing out from what you're seeing on air? I mean, are you feeling like talent, reporters, hosts, whatever, are compensating or overcorrecting? And, you know, if during the, the Trump years they were, you know, it was like a 11 alarm fire every single day uh, and, and people were yelling about Donald Trump. Are people there that we seeing on television tacking back to the middle or trying to show that they're being tough on President Biden? Because it certainly felt that way after his democracy address when like he was being singled out for having a pair of Marines behind him for a political speech as if the whole mission accomplished spectacle never happened or as if Donald Trump never marched with a Bible and his military commanders across the street from the White House. I mean, I thought that was a bananas take. Yeah, so, I, you know, look, like in the wake of Brian Stelter, in the wake of, of John Harwood, people are, are like, who, who else might go? And one of those people is Brianna Keeler, who built a, a, a very strong reputation for herself during the end of the Trump-Jeff Zucker era um, as someone who was very hard on Republicans, was very hard on on the Trump wing of the Republican Party. And she sort of continued to do that for a while. And then, yes, she she sort of has this very staunch criticism of Biden using those two Marines as a backdrop, which can feel like she is sort of overcompensating for something. What I would say is that the most telling piece of all of this is the second guessing. It's the fact that now, including many people at CNN who I've spoken to in the last few weeks, everything you see on programming that is critical now of Biden or is a little more receptive to a Republican point of view is now sort of second guessed and viewed through that prism. Are they taking a genuine position on this or or are they doing this because they know that Chris Licht wants something else? And are they trying to appease him or please him? Are they trying to protect their jobs? The state of CNN is not necessarily that everyone is overcompensating and trying to please him. It is true that everyone is sort of second-guessing every decision that's being made because that elephant is in the room. And that is not particularly conducive to great journalism if you have journalists sort of wondering what they need to do in order to please the boss rather than just thinking, what should I? What aligns with my understanding of, of what the appropriate approach to journalism is. You know, Dylan, just as we're taping this, Politico, under their West Wing playbook, posted a piece called The Biden-CNN Rift. Max Tanny and Alex Thompson uh, wrote this, but basically that like people in the Biden White House are becoming cranky with their coverage in the last week. I mean, the coverage of the, the democracy speech in particular. And Ron Klain, retweeted uh, a tweet calling CNN Diet Fox <laughs> uh, after anchor Poppy Harlow asked Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre whether Biden would apologize for calling Republicans semi-fascists. There's a tone out there in the online conversation that CNN is like suddenly like accommodating Trump or MAGA forces. And like, I, I don't, I don't think that's true. I think CNN has received criticism from the left in recent years for asking hard questions or maybe dumb horse race questions of Democrats. Yes, 
most of their skepticism slash hostility has been toward Trump and Republicans. But like, it's always been part of CNN's DNA to like ask hard questions of people in power. And like, that's also an MO of, of just like DC journalists generally. And so the idea that like, if the Biden White House currently thinks CNN is becoming Diet Fox, I just don't think that's the case. I do think there might be some fantastical target demo viewer out there that might not exist. I don't know, but like a sort of like moderate swingy Republican Biden voter who, who like maybe voted for Trump in 16, the kind of like suburbanite person, like like the, um, the, the Glenn Youngkin voter in Virginia. Like maybe that's who they're trying to target. But again, I don't think they're going to stop calling out Donald Trump. No, they're not. They're definitely not. And I think, I actually think that the target here is the glowing reviews six months from now in Variety or The Hollywood Reporter or The Wall Street Journal or The New York Times that say that Chris Licht has succeeded in elevating the conversation, making it more sophisticated, making it more respectful, reestablishing a sense of nonpartisanship in cable news, and that if you achieve those critical reviews, you have fulfilled David Zaslav's ambition of restoring CNN as what he calls a reputational asset. Show me the Fox News viewer out there who has actually been like, oh, you know what? I'm going to give CNN another try. I don't know if those people exist. I think so far what we're seeing in CNN is less about what it is and more about what it's not. And that it is not a staunchly anti-Trump, anti-Republican network, but one that can continue to criticize Trump and the MAGA wing and, and at the same time criticize Democrats. Now, are the sentiments of the White House and Ron Klain justified uh, or are they just not used to this level of criticism? That's a, probably a debate for another day. But whatever the case is like, this is a new CNN for Democrats. And also, I know Biden won the Democratic primary and won the presidency by ignoring Twitter. But holy shit, like the fucking West Wing is obsessed with cable and obsessed with Twitter. Yeah. Like I get sent tweets all the time from like people <laughs> yeah. in the White House press office and like I'm friends with those people too. It's just like, guys, like remember what got you here. <laughs> yes, no, <laughs> like, exactly. Like, don't Stop pretending you don't care about the DC insider stuff. And again, I get that that drives narratives. It's important to persuade people in yes. Washington, but like, man, they do care. They care yeah. a lot. They care a lot and they care more than they should. <laughs> All right, Dylan, it's good to have you back, man. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you, Peter. When we come back, Alex Bigler is here with Julia Yaffe for this week's Feedback Friday. Everybody. Welcome back. This is Alex Bigler. And for this week's Friday edition, I am joined with, by the incomparable Julia Yaffe. Julia and I really got to know each other um, at the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine because you were in incredibly high demand and still are from producers and podcasts and newspapers and readers and the comedy seller, everybody to explain the situation and the multitude of dimensions associated with it. Now, I was really blown away by your poise and your intellect and your empathy. Um, 
And then on top of that, was very pleasantly surprised to find that we have a similar sense of humor. So <laughs> <laughs> we sure do. So I'm so happy you, you were able to take the time to talk with me today. Thank you. I will always take the time to talk to you because I love the friendship that we forged out of that horrible, horrible time. It was a nice kind of sliver of light in the darkness. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm going to dive right in. I've got a lot of questions for you today. And I, you know, not only work with you, but I'm an avid reader of your work, too. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is you write about all sorts of things, but I'm going to talk about the Russian invasion for a second. And you obviously write about it from a factual and well-sourced perspective. But as a reader, what I find additionally compelling is you have a personal connection to these countries as well. And what I want to know and what I know a lot of our readers want to know is, you know, this really personal connection comes across in everything you do. How does that impact or affect how you think about your work and, and how you report on the situation? I think what it does for me is that it's not just an abstract intellectual exercise. And one of the things that I find really frustrating about the way that so many journalists and historians and scholars write about that part of the world, but in general, write about politics and write about history is from this very male perspective, which is that pure rationality is the height of human achievement and rationality is good. Rationality also precludes the presence of all emotion. And emotion is seen by these people as having no informational value no value at all whatsoever. Personally, I think it leads them to miss a lot and to misunderstand a lot. And so, in fact, today uh, I happened to have lunch with two Moscow colleagues, and we were talking about just this, about this kind of irrational, seemingly irrational thing, but is actually very rational from an emotional point of view, which is that Nobody wants to be a bad person. And we were talking about why there are Russian people who do support what their government is doing in Ukraine and why they will turn over backwards to explain it away because emotionally it doesn't feel good to be a bad person and to be on the side of evil. And that's important because that means there's a lot of political support that Vladimir Putin can draw on to keep waging this war. But if you are operating from a place of pure rationality and you're not thinking about people as people and you don't care about what actually goes on in their hearts and minds, then you'll miss this and you'll just say, but it's irrational for them to support it, blah, blah, blah. Because I know a lot of people there and I know a lot of them are not necessarily bad people. I often have to explain this to myself about how they're, how these people think this way, why people who might not other, otherwise be bad people, why they believe bad, evil things. It forces me to reckon with the humanity of the whole situation, which is in turn very important for the geopolitics. I think that it is one of the reasons why our readers seek you out and want to read you is because you're clearly taking the information, processing it through a lens that they might not have, that other people reporting might not have, um, and are able to look at things that are going on through a prism that others are not. 
Um, obviously, whether or not you're reporting about Russia or you're reporting about foreign policy or things in D.C., your work is very intense. There's an intensity in the things <laughs> that you're writing about. Um, and you're also, you know, frankly, in the public eye a lot. And so what I'm curious about, and I'm sure our, our listeners are as well, is how do you unplug from that? How do you unwind? Like, what do you do for fun? Can you separate who you are from what your work is? So I think this is where I've gotten in trouble the most because I separate it too much and because I'm often not aware of the fact that I am in the public eye. A lot of the times I'm just like, I'm just being me and I'm just like writing words into the ether and why are people so mad? You and I were in a green room together and the people outside the room were like, Julia Yaffe's in there, like whispering, whispering. And inside you were like, should I wear the purple or? <laughs> and I don't understand that. I think through bitter and very difficult experience, I've had to teach myself that, but it doesn't come naturally to me. So what I have left over from the natural part of it is the unplugging because it is natural for me to just, like I've always loved performing. I've always loved being on a stage. I, um, I was a fairly serious dancer, but I've never understood kind of the jump from that to like what I say matters. So I have to like do extra thinking to be like, okay, if I say this, what will people think? Or if I do this, what will people think? I have to like force myself to consider that but to unplug, it's quite easy because I'm just like, okay, whatever. I don't have to think about that anymore. I can just be me. And what I do to unplug is um, travel. I really like to cook. She's a renowned DC cook, I would say. <laughs> I feel like that's an underhanded compliment because no. there's a DC because there's DC in front of it. <laughs> no, 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 no. I sorry, I shouldn't have qualified with DC. Renowned cook. The cookbook's coming out next year, so um, get ready. No, um, and then um, I, I'm really into wine. I'm a big wine dork. And I really like to read, but I only read fiction. I don't really read much nonfiction at all. So that's really how I unplug. I don't read magazines. I don't read long form journalism, which is probably, or nonfiction, which is kind of a crime, I think, for a person who writes uh, long form nonfiction to admit. But because I read so much of it during the day, what I read at night for pleasure is purely fiction makes sense. But you do read some other of your Puck colleagues' work. Is there any anyone's work in particular you'd like to recommend to our listeners? If they're, if they're not already reading them, maybe they should. Totally. So um, it's hard to pick your favorite child. And yet, <laughs> um, I love Teen and Wins writing so much because that woman has such a view into the insanity that is MAGA world. And I feel like everything I read in Tina's work, I will then read about a few months later in the kind of mainstream press. She sees stuff coming before it even gets around the bend and explains a lot of the dynamics in so much as you can even explain these things. And she writes with such verve and grace and humor. Like last week, she wrote about Sarah Palin and she talked about how when Sarah Palin emerged on the scene as a vice presidential candidate, she's like, until then, vice presidential candidates had gone to Ivy League schools. They hadn't become grandparents at 40. 
It was such a well-done dig. And the fact that she comes from that world, that she's basically like an escaped cult member, gives her an unbelievable view and also understanding um, and an ability to decode this place that is still such an important factor in our political system and such a dangerous one. And so I feel like Tina has become absolutely required reading for me. The unbreakable Tina Nguyen. Um, yes. I completely agree. And her voice and humor is so clear and everything she writes too. I, I, I love reading Tina. Oh yeah. Well, Julia, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me again. I already, my head is racing with all of the questions I didn't ask, what I can't wait to ask next time. next time. Um, so thank you so much. And I hope you have a great weekend. You too. Thanks so much, Alex. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 